Um, Let me just pray as we begin to look at the word together. Our loving Father, we thank you for the abundant privilege that we have to look into your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us, that you as the triune God have not kept truth to yourself, but you revealed yourself, you opened yourself up so that we could know you. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would use this text and use your word to draw us to yourself that we might have tender hearts before you. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, we live in a day in which encouraged from every sector of society, we are encouraged to follow our emotions, to simply follow where our emotions lead us and to be swept up by how we feel. This is seen in everything from Dear Abby columns to self-help books to Disney, right? Uh, stop holding back your emotions. Just let it go. Let it go, right? Um, well, this morning we are going to look at what the Bible calls a tender heart. And what the Bible calls a tender heart is not the same thing as um, an emotional person. Although you might get that idea. This is not, a tender heart is not just a heart that cries at everything sentimental. A tender hearted person is not someone who is simply touchy feely in all of their relationships. But a tender heart is one that responds to truth. It's one that is broken over sin and it's a heart that deeply loves the Lord. And for those of us that have spent significant time in the church with the people of God around the word of God, there comes with that a danger of familiarity. Maybe you felt this in your own life. You spent uh, week after week coming to church, week after week reading the word of God. And after a while, you become to get glazed over. The excitement over coming to the word of God and being with the people of God and hearing the word of God preached doesn't quite excite your heart like it once did. Young people, you've grown up in the church. You've come to church for as long as you can remember. Everything from Sunday school on up. This Danger of familiarity is very real in you. I know that for myself, having grown up in the church. We can uh, begin to get this encrusted layer over our hearts in which they are no longer tender when they hear the word of God. They are no longer tender when we hear the commands, when we hear the exhortations, when we hear the encouragements. And instead, it just washes over us and doesn't affect us at all. And so we need to be reminded of what it looks like to have a tender heart before the Lord. But as I begin, I just want to ask you, in a quick moment of self-diagnosis, would you say that you have a tender heart before the Lord? Would you say that the truths about him in his word and in the gospel are sweet to you? Or is it same old, same old? We need to learn how to have a tender heart. And we're learning, 
going to see that in the life of King Josiah, which is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. So if you're not there already, please open your copy of God's word to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And before we look into the specifics of the tender heart of uh, Josiah, we are going to uh, set the stage. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 7. 2 Chronicles 34. Verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on the altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around. He broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now we can see here that Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And I think when we hear this story in Sunday school, we think, oh, how cute. An eight-year-old king, and uh, it's got a nice uh, little sound to it of a, of a little boy who uh, is serving the Lord. But we need to consider the circumstances by which he came to the throne. His grandfather was Manasseh. And if you know anything about the Old Testament kings, you know Manasseh stands the big black stain in the center of Judah's kingly history. He was known for his immorality. He was known for his idolatry. And he reigned, he reigned for a long time. He reigned for 55 years, which in those days was long. And he passes away and his son Ammon comes to the throne at 22 years old. But he only reigns two years. He dies at age 24 because his servants conspired against him and killed him. So then it says that the, that the nation of Israel rose up and they killed the people that had killed the king. And then they put Josiah on the throne. So this cute little eight-year-old boy is being put on the throne in the midst of a revolt just getting shut down. His dad has just been slaughtered. And here he is now called to lead the country. Now, whether... Uh, it was a mentor who took him in, a, 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 a sage or a priest who was there in the royal household that took Josiah under his wing and trained him, uh, or whether it was uh, simply his own resolve and learning from the men of his, uh, of, his, of his father and his grandfather, 
Josiah took a different course. He has a heritage of wickedness, a heritage of ungodliness, and yet Josiah chooses to go a different route. It says in verse 2 that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. This is amazing. This is the grace of God in Josiah's life. Because everything was working towards him to go the other direction. And so he decides that he is going to follow the Lord. And he begins by these massive reforms at age 16. He begins to purge the country and is cutting down idols, is cutting down uh, Asherim, is cutting down uh, these, these metal images, grinds them into dust, scatters them over the nation. I mean, this is not one stone left upon another. He does not want to see idolatry taking place in Israel any longer. And you just, as you go through those verses, you go, yeah, go, go Josiah, right? And then he goes and crushes some more idolatry and you go, yeah, he does it again. And you just, you just, you just, your heart swells as you see righteousness begin to sweep through the land again. And so he goes even up into the northern kingdom of Israel. He doesn't just take care of Judah, the southern kingdom. He goes up into the northern kingdom, which has already been attacked and most of the inhabitants taken away to Assyria. But there were still many uh, Israelites left, and he goes through and makes sure that, that there is true worship of Yahweh through there as well. So this is Josiah. He is on reform. He is on a, a righteous rampage, you might say, to bring righteousness back into the land. Let's pick up the story in verse 8. It says, now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Johaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone, and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jahath and Obadiah the Levites of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were, the burden, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. So here... He continues. He's now taken away the high places from all the hills. He's destroyed all the altars from around the country. And now he's centering on the hub of Israelite worship, which is the temple. If there's going to be reform, if Israel is going to turn their hearts back to the Lord, it's got to take place at the very center and work its way out. And so he begins to rebuild the temple, which it says the other kings had let go to ruin. But you can imagine why. Both his grandfather and his father had nothing to do with true Israelite worship. They didn't care for 
uh, the ways of the Lord. And so the temple didn't really matter to them. They practiced their idolatry and their immorality everywhere. And so as they're repairing the temple here, uh, they, uh, he, is, he is beginning to, to sweep through and to set things right. He's now 26, and he is going to repair the temple. Now, this is in the book of 2 Chronicles. And the book of 2 Chronicles was written uh, by the same guy who wrote 1 Chronicles. And in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, it is one book. It is just Chronicles. We, it has been split up uh, through history so that it's easier for us to read um, between two books. But it's been said that in the book of Chronicles, so First and Second Chronicles, that the kings of Judah demonstrated how much they treasured the Lord by how they maintained the temple. So in other words, you, you can go through the book of First and Second Chronicles and see how did they treat the temple. And when you answer that question, you can then see how they treasured and how they treated the Lord. In other words, the author uses the temple as a symbol to show how the kings of Israel love the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 28, 24, it says that Ahaz shut the doors of the temple. While Manasseh, who we've been speaking about, uh, uh, he says that he built altars in the temple, according to 33 Chapter 33, verses 4 through 5. But on the positive side, we read about Joash and Hezekiah. They had the doors of the temple opened and the whole place cleaned and the worship of Yahweh reinstated. So there's this going back and forth through the books of First and Second Chronicles where the kings that don't follow the Lord shut the temple up and build high places or put idols in it. And the godly kings of Israel then clean house and set up right worship of God again. And so the author of Chronicles is doing that again here with Josiah to show that he has indeed followed the Lord. Well, let's continue with the narrative reading again in verse 14. Again, we are just picking up the the scene to be set for us to look at Josiah's, the characteristics of Josiah's tender heart. So let's read again in verse 14. It says, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king. All that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it, read from it before the king. Now picture this scene. These guys are cleaning out the temple. You know, the brooms are going, you got crews kind of working on different areas, and they're just sweeping out all this dust that's been accumulated through all these years. And Hilkiah's back there in one little corner, and he bumps into a scroll. And he's kind of going, wait, what's this? He pulls it out. And in a very short order, he recognizes exactly what it is. That this is the book of the law given through Moses. 
These were the instructions given to this nation for how they were to live and how they were to order their not only personal lives, but national life. Now, there's no way to tell exactly what books of the Bible were found here. Some say it's only Deuteronomy. Uh, I think we can easily assume that it was the whole Pentateuch. I don't think there's any reason to doubt that. The five books of Moses that we have are the first five books of our Bible. And so then Hilkiah the priest talks to Shaphan, and Shaphan then takes it to the king. And it's almost as if Hilkiah and Shaphan immediately know that the game has just changed. They just know that something serious has been found. This is a game changer. And, I mean, you just think about it for a moment. Isn't it a little strange that they weren't looking for this book to begin with? They, they weren't searching and searching, trying to find the book of the law. They happened upon it in the back of the temple. And especially since Josiah had already been gung-ho about serving the Lord and wanting to change the nation. But I think it just goes to show how long this book had been hidden. If we take into account the reigns of his father and grandfather, and suppose uh, that the, the book of the law was hidden from the time of his grandfather's reign, this book was hidden for 75 years. I mean, consider that in 1940, all the Bibles were hidden away. 1940. And then Christianity continued on in this country. Where do you think our Christianity would be today if we haven't had a copy of the Bible for 75 years? That's the state of Israelite religion at this point. The, the thought of a book had even been forgotten it was merely tradition that was keeping them alive. And so Shaphan brings this book to Josiah. And you just get this, this sense that he understands there's this tension as he's bringing it to the king. He knows that his king has been on reforms, has been cutting down idols, and has been looking to bring righteousness back into the land. And so he comes to report, and he gives this kind of like surfacey report, right? He says, uh... All that was committed to your servants, they have done, and they've emptied out the money and they've, uh, that was found in the house of the Lord, and they've given it to the overseers. You know, kind of like a, uh, the foreman of a project reporting to his boss. But the scriptures don't just add on the next phrase. They actually stop and say, then Shaphan the secretary told the king. I think there was a, a bit of hesitation. You know, Josiah's kind of doing his thing. He's like, yeah, is, is that all, Shaphan? He's like, well, yes, there's actually one more thing. We've found a book. And Josiah stops and looks up. What book? Are you talking about the book that we've heard about but we've never seen? And it says, and then Shaphan read from it before the king. And so it's Josiah's response to the reading of the word of God that I want us to look at briefly here this morning. It's his tender heart that we see after this, this book is read from. We're going to see four characteristics of a tender heart. Four characteristics of a tender heart toward God. So that we might pray for such a heart from God ourselves. We want to see this example in Josiah and pray and ask God to work that same kind of heart in us. So the first characteristic of a tender heart is that a tender heart receives the word of God with brokenness. 
A tender heart receives the word of God with brokenness. And we see this simply in verse 19. It says, And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. He tore his clothes. This was Josiah's first response. He rips his garments. And in our culture today, uh, people ripping their clothes doesn't seem to communicate much, except that maybe they're going insane or uh, or something else. Um, We don't often uh, tear our clothes in contrition. But this was something biblically that communicated very loudly the condition of Josiah's heart. It was an expression of grief. It was an outward sign that people knew of the grief that was taking place inside the individual. The broken garment represented the broken heart inside. He was communicating that his heart was broken over what he had just heard. And this practice is, like I said, shown throughout Scripture. We see it. uh, Reuben tore his clothes on finding that Joseph, his younger brother, was thrown, uh, was actually not in the pit in Genesis 37. We see uh, Job tearing his clothes after hearing of all the loss that he had received. Remember those messengers just kept coming one after another about his family and his, all his livestock. And, and he tears his clothes upon hearing that. And uh, Joshua tore his clothes when he heard of the defeat at the battle of Ai. When they had gone out and, and several thousand had been killed, he tore his clothes. And So we see Josiah standing in line with other godly men of the scriptures showing their grief. Josiah did not pridefully resist the word. He heard the word and he was grieved. Why was he grieved? He was grieved because he knew that the nation stood under the wrath of God. He knew that upon reading this book that there were a thousand things that they had been failing to do. A thousand things that they had been disobeying God under. In the book of the law is the reading of the blessings and the curses. And no doubt, as those curses are being read, he's he's feeling that growing dark cloud coming over him and over the nation. And realizing that actually this dark cloud has been sitting upon us this whole time. This whole time of my reign, we have had this dark cloud of God's wrath over us and we didn't even know it. He's broken. The grief was not simply a sorrow over being caught in his sin or or being pressured because of the circumstances. His heart was tender before God. Remember, this was a man who had spent the first many years of his reign looking to eradicate idolatry from the land. He had set his heart to follow after David. And yet here he finds that he hasn't been truly walking in the right way. He's been praying, been hoping, been trying to honor the Lord. And here he finds all the ways that he and his nation have fallen short. His desire is to please the Lord. And yet he realizes that he's been off track. Now, not everything that he's been done is wrong. And God certainly uh, was pleased with his efforts of seeking to honor him. But he realized he's not been, he hasn't been fully obedient. There's been many things that he has transgressed the law of God in. Friends, we also must respond in brokenness to the word of God. 
I don't know about you, but I can sometimes have a, a, a view of the Christian life in which I just try to get to a stable point where I'm doing okay. And I don't really want to be uh, shaken off of that. I don't want someone confronting me off of that. I think that I'm doing just fine. And then correction comes, and I'm not ready for it. And I'm not looking to redirect my life. I'm not looking to change. I think that I'm still doing fine. But the reality is, is that we always have areas of reformation in our lives. Is that not true? We are a sinful people. We have so much remaining corruption within us that we need continual repentance. We need continual transformation in our lives. And so we must have a tenderness to the word of God. No matter how good or fine that we think we're doing. I mean, this is seen in our attitude when we come and sit in a sermon. There's been many times throughout my life that I've come and I've sat in on a sermon and I haven't had a tender heart of brokenness. I've either come into uh, with an with a, with a attitude of skepticism. What does this guy have to say? It's really going to be new for me and revolutionary. Or I'm critiquing it. Or I find some way that thinking, well, this really isn't a great sermon, and so I don't really have to listen to it. I find excuses to pull myself out from underneath it. But this is just a reaction of my flesh. We need to be coming to hear the word of the living God with a tender heart. Looking for him to speak to us and looking for him to transform us, which means showing us where we've gone wrong. We must expect that. We must come expecting to have our pride shattered, to have our sin exposed. That's what the searchlight of the word of God is designed to do. And so I ask you, what's your heart attitude when you come to church to hear a sermon? Are you coming asking that God would show you your sin? Show you the ways that you're, you're transgressing his law so that you might reform and change your life to walk truly with him? Or are you just sitting comfortably, letting that crustedness stay on your heart and think that you're doing fine? It can happen when we pull out our Bibles to read on a daily basis. And that eventually then puts, causes us to set the Bible aside, right? Well, you know, we just kind of read a good little encouraging thing. And I think I'm doing fine. You know, Lord, bless my day. Help me to do fine. But those are the signs of a, of a hardened heart. That's familiar with these things, but it's not tender towards the things of God. It's not looking for him to speak to us. looking for him to transform us. And so the first characteristic of a tender heart towards God is that it receives the word of God with brokenness. My friends, may we have that brokenness. May we ask God to give us that brokenness. The second characteristic of a broken heart, of a tender heart, uh, is that a tender heart refuses to defend self-righteousness. A broken heart, a tender heart refuses to defend self-righteousness. Now, this second characteristic is not so much what the text says, but what it doesn't say. 
And I think it's instructive for us as well. Again, put yourself in the shoes of Josiah. He, as a man for the last decade, has sought to follow the Lord to every, every point that he can. And then he's, this book is read before him, and he sees all the ways that he is indicted, all the ways that he has not been following the Lord. And it could have been extremely easy for him to excuse away that indictment. And two easy excuses come to mind. The first excuse he could, have brought, he could have brought up is his religious accomplishment. He could have rested on this religious accomplishment. He had done a lot of good things for God. He could have said, God, you know, uh, yeah, I read that stuff in your book, but look at all that I've done for you. Look at how the last decade I've been on a righteous rampage to get idolatry out of this land. I've been trying to lead your people. It's been sincere. I've been trying He thought he was giving God his all. And it could have been easy for Josiah to try to convince God that, uh, of the good things that he had been doing. But this was a tender-hearted man. He would not allow his heart to stand on its own goodness. He knew he was guilty. He knew he and the nation needed reconciliation. And friends, for us, the gospel should be at work in the same way. When we hear the word of God and we are uh, given an exhortation, we, do we try to convince ourselves that we're good enough or we're doing just fine in certain areas of our Christian life? Oh, we're keeping our head afloat? Or are we willing to receive an accurate ex- assessment of where we're at before the Lord? It's sad to think that we would communicate to God In this way that we don't actually need the sacrifice of Christ. We don't need the atonement of Christ. God, I'm good enough. I'm keeping myself afloat in my Christian life. Friends, if we were able to be good enough to keep ourselves on the straight and narrow, Jesus would not have needed to come and die. The gospel speaks to us in this moment that we are not good enough. To stand on our own goodness and try to convince God of that is a false gospel. It's a gospel that leads us straight to hell. It was the gospel the Pharisees stood upon. And so the only thing that we bring to the table, and Josiah understood this, was our sin and our need. Our need of redemption. Our need of forgiveness. So... The first excuse Josiah could have brought was his righteous accomplishment. The second excuse he could have brought was his comparison to other people in the nation. He doesn't, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't compare himself to others. And we can see this happen in our lives all over the place. But you could, you could easily hear the argument rising up in Josiah's mind, right? He says, God, I'm more righteous than, than many of the other kings that have come before me. My father, my grandfather, I'm, look, I'm at least following in the right way. Sure, there's some specifics I'm not doing. But he doesn't do this. He could have looked around the nation and compared himself to all of the people in the nation. He personally had done much for the cause of God. And there were people that weren't wholeheartedly following God. And he could have said, God, look at all the pe- your people. At least I care. At least I'm passionate about this. 
But he doesn't swing this for his advantage for two reasons. One, because he's the leader of the nation, and if the nation's not following God, then it's ultimately his fault. The second reason he doesn't do this is because he was convicted in his heart that he was not truly following the Lord. He knew that the, that the, the laser was on him. He knew that the wrath of God was pointing right at him, and he could not squirm out of it. When it comes to our Christian lives, friends, isn't it easier to look around at how other people are doing and can compare ourselves to them and to think that we're doing okay? Students, maybe it's friends at school. You evaluate your life and you're like, well, as I look around at all these friends at school, whether it's a Christian school or, or public school, and you compare yourself and you think, well, I'm not like that kid. I'm not like that girl. And you think that, I go to a good church, I'm in a good family, I'm doing okay. All right. And you kind of console yourself that you're doing fine. Or maybe it's fellow employees at work. And you think, well, look around. Man, they, their marriage is, is wrecked. And uh, wow, they, he really hates his job. And um, he doesn't love his kids. And at least I care for my kids. At least I'm, you know, I'm, staying in my marriage, and you find ways to compare yourself and to make yourself feel that you're doing okay. We do this all the time. But when it comes to God's economy, we are bankrupt in the righteousness department. You and I bring nothing to the table. You and I have nothing we can stand on. You and I have nothing that we can take pride in. That when the law of God comes knocking, we can't pull anything out. Or we think we have a bag full of stuff and we go to grab it and we drop it on the table and it's nothing. Right? Paul says that in Philippians chapter 3. That all of this righteousness that he had accomplished was counted as nothing. It was wisps. It was an illusion. And so, if we're going to have a tender heart like Josiah, we need to go to the gospel. We need to lay down our self-righteousness, lay down our pride, lay down thinking that we're doing just fine, trying to convince ourselves that we're following the Lord and let the law of God strike us where we're at and allow us to be broken before him. The third characteristic of a tender heart toward God is that a tender heart requests reconciliation with God. A tender heart requests reconciliation with God. A tender heart that's produced by the Spirit of God does not leave a man wallowing in his sorrow and his self-pity, but it sends him to God to make things right. And we see this in the life of Josiah. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 20. I'll read verse 19 just for... The flow. He says in verse 19, And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me. And for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us. Because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is in this book. Verse 22. 
So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And she spoke to her, and they spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your father's And you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. So Josiah hears these words. He's broken. He knows he's condemned. He knows that he's guilty. And so he immediately sends men to go inquire of the Lord. And sends it. To the prophetess Huldah. And she then relays the word back to Josiah of Yahweh's message. Notice that Josiah's response is not anger towards God. He doesn't, he's not angry that uh, God is going to bring wrath, but he simply has a longing to be right with God. His heart is that he would have a reconciled relationship with God. And truly, a, a sign that a heart has been changed before God is that it wants to be reconciled with God. A heart that is tender before the Lord wants to be reconciled with his creator. You see, if someone is convicted by the word and all they want to do is change their behavior, okay, God, okay, I get it. I'll just stop doing this. Okay, I'll just cut out this bad thing in my life. Are you happy now? Or maybe there's a little more righteous attitude in that, right? There's, there's all right, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. And, and, and thinking that that's all that needs to be done. But see, reconciliation with God is not just changing your behavior. There's, there's sins that need to be forgiven. There's something that's in the way that needs to be dealt with. And that is why reconciliation must take place. And that's where the gospel comes into play. God has made it possible for you and I to be reconciled to God. He's he's forgiven us of our sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he's taken our sin out of the way so that we can have relationship with God. This is the good news. This is the amazing gospel that you and I can be reconciled to our creator. God has come to get us. 
He, hasn't, he isn't staying on a hill far away with his arms crossed saying, you better get here quickly, otherwise my patience is going to run out. No, God crossed heaven and earth, took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ to bear the penalty that you and I deserve for our sins upon the cross. He was treated as a lawbreaker. He was punished as Manasseh should have been punished, as a a vile king. He was treated as the Pharisees and the Roman soldiers should have been treated for putting Christ upon the cross. He was treated as the worst serial killer. He was treated as the worst sinner so that you and I could experience life everlasting in a relationship with God. This is the good news. And we see that good news played out even in the life of Josiah. Did you see God's grace in that passage? God says, yes, I'm still going to bring wrath and judgment because this people deserves it. But he says, Josiah, because your heart was tender before me, because you humbled yourself before me, I am going to preserve your life and you will die in peace. You will not see this destruction in this day. And he says, I will postpone that to a later day. Friends, I encourage you this morning. If you have been distant from God, if you know the conviction of God upon your life, that you have not been following after him, that you have not been walking in righteousness, do not despair. Do not turn and run away from God, but like Josiah, turn and run to him. Because he has opened his arms wide. He has provided the very way for you to come to him through the person of his son. But you must come with a tender heart. You must come with a heart that's broken for your sin. And you say, Micah, my heart's not broken. I I just don't feel broken over my sin. And I say, go to God and cry out to him that he would give you a broken heart. Don't hold back because it's not there. Plead with God that he would give it to you. God is kind. God is gracious. God says, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, everyone who thirsts, come, turn and repent. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. If you know you are not following after the Lord, I call you this morning by the authority of the word of God to turn and to run to him right now. Repent of your sin right where you're at. Do not give another moment to the devil. Do not give another moment to your flesh. But submit your heart to the authority of God, the great and sovereign ruler of this universe who has done all to secure your salvation. Do not wait another moment. Well, let's look at the last characteristic of a tender heart. The fourth characteristic of a tender heart is that a tender heart recommits to walk with God completely. A tender heart recommits to walk with God completely. Let's finish out chapter 34, starting in verse 29. It says, Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small, 
And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Here we read the final completion of a heart that is tender before God. It is not satisfied to simply be contrite over sin. It is not satisfied to simply confess sin before God. It is not satisfied until there is, there is obedience played out in his life. And we see that in Josiah. He hears the word of the Lord. He hears the mercy of God. And he then looks to bring about reform and total obedience in his life and in the life of the people of Israel. He very deliberately commits his heart and soul to obedience of the book. And I think that it's significant that Josiah didn't delegate this to somebody. He didn't call in Hilkiah the high priest and say, okay, now lead the people in, in, in following after the Lord. No, he took it into his own hands. He said, if, if reform is going to happen in Israel, if reformation is going to happen in this place, it's got to begin with me. If these people are going to change, they need to see that the change has started at the highest place. And so he stands up and taking on the honor of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, he realizes that's at stake and he, and he, and he directs the people to make a covenant with God, to renew their covenant. You see, Josiah knew that sorrow over sin wasn't enough. Simply confessing it wasn't enough. He needed to turn all the way, make 180 degrees from turning towards sin and turning towards the Lord. Friends, if we are going to have tender hearts like Josiah, we also need to commit to following wholeheartedly after the Lord. We like to appease our guilty conscience sometimes by simply just confessing our sin and then going on with our lives and thinking, whew, all right, that guilt isn't hanging over my shoulder anymore. But we don't do the work. We don't recommit to follow the Lord completely. And we stumble right back into the same sins. My friends, let us have a tender heart to the, towards the Lord in the whole process until we're following wholeheartedly after him. May we go all the way like Josiah did. And notice the influence that that has. Fathers, notice the influence that can have on your family. When the leader commits to follow after the Lord, those who are under him will follow. This is exactly what we need. So this morning we've seen four characteristics of a tender heart towards God. Friends, if we don't cultivate these in our lives, then we are going to wind up being cold and hardened and 
encrusted with familiarity. And we're going to come and hear more messages from the Word of God. We're going to open our Bibles and read more verses and let it simply bounce off of us. But as we read the example of Josiah, we recognize that we can't change our own hearts. You know you've been in that dry place, that place where you, yes, you recognize the problem, but you just can't seem to turn the corner. You just can't seem to change. And that's because we often try to change in our flesh. And so this morning, this is not a call to try harder as much as it is a call to rest upon the Son. Rest upon the work of Christ. Go to Him. Confess your sin, recognizing that He has provided all for you. Look to obey Him, and He will transform your life. He will conform your life. He will give you a tender heart if you but ask Him. You do not have because you do not ask. We need to remember, as David prayed in Psalm 51, that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 